the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, passing bus-sized meteor discovered to be actual far-out space bus full of hippies who have now, due to radiation exposure, turned into singing Muppets. Stories to read and vampires to bleed, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we have a roundtable discussion with the editor and authors in a great new weird Western anthology this time. It's out of mass market. This book is called Straight Out of Deadwood. It's a great collection of stories in this popular genre where the Wild West meets horror, fantasy, and sometimes science fiction. We have with us David Boop. DJ Butler, Betsy Dornbush, Travis Heerman, and hey, Charlene Harris, author of the True Blood series. Charlene isn't in the interview at first, but she joins us midway through and talks all about her story and a new series that she's writing. So stay tuned for that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Misty Magic September ebook sale continues until the stroke of midnight, October 1st. This is a massive Mercedes Lackey ebook sale. Save $2 per ebook on four of her latest titles and save $1 on everything else. Mercedes Lackey. $2 off on Silence, Breaking Silence, The Waters in the Wild, and The Wizard of Carries. Plus $1 off on all other Mercedes Lackey eBooks, all of them. The sale will be gone in October, so load up on Lackey now. There's new free fiction and nonfiction at the Bain.com website right there on the front page. For this month's free fiction, we have At the Seams by Jacob Hollow. This is a story set in the universe of David Weber and Jacob Hollow's upcoming time travel novel, The Valkyrie Protocol. Sarah Schoffel, and her father, the scientist Kim Schoffel, were enjoying a beer on the back porch when out of nowhere, there was a spike in chronometric activity and all of time came crashing in on itself. Now, Sarah races through time in the new prototype of Time Ship Traveler 1 and reality continues to come apart at the seams in a race through and against time. Save herself and perhaps her world. And for September free nonfiction, we continue with the most excellent three-part series by Tom Crapman. This details and elucidates all things having to do with his career reverse, as seen in his latest novel, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath. The who, what, when, where, why, and how of the career reverse. Tom Crapman's Patricio Carrera series has cut a swath through the military science fiction genre. In Notes on the Carrera-verse, Crapman outlines the history and world-building of his popular creation. Notes on the Carrera-verse, a concordance, more or less, as Tom Crapman calls it, to, by Tom Crapman, and At the Seams by Jacob Hollow, which is uh, set in the world of the Valkyrie Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow, 
Both are now available at the Bain.com website. So check them out. Here is our roundtable interview talking about Straight Out of Deadwood, a anthology that's now in mass market of weird Western stories. Charlene Harris will turn up later in the interview and discuss her story in the anthology. Now here's the roundtable. Want to welcome David Boop, DJ Butler, Travis Herman, and Betsy Dornbush. Is that right, Betsy Dornbush? Yes. Yes. Um, I I don't know how to pronounce that C sometimes in German <laughs> last names. So, um, to the podcast. Hello, folks. Hello. Hey. Thank and you for I having say us. Travis's name correctly. Is it? It's a Herman. Herman. Yep. Herman. Yep. Ah. Uh, Another German last name that yep. untangled. So, <laughs> and no one ever spells it right. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife probably. Mine only has four letters and they don't spell it right, so don't worry. <laughs> so uh, let me uh, let me read uh, or uh, give a little bit of background on each of you, so we can uh, we can get an idea of the distinguished crowd we have here. David Boop is a Denver-based speculative fiction essayist and screenwriter. Before turning to fiction. Uh, David worked as a DJ, a film critic, a journalist, and an actor. His debut novel, The Sci-Fi Noir, She Murdered Me with Science, is back in print from Wordfire Press. And David went on to edit the best-selling weird Western anthology, Straight Out of Tombstone, for, for Bain. Uh, Dave is prolific in short fiction with many short stories and two short films to his credit. He's published across several genres, including media tie-ins for Predator, The Green Hornet, The Black Bat, and Veronica Mars, he's a single dad, summa cum laude, creative writing graduate. Well, we won't hold that against you. Uh, <laughs> his hobbies include film noir, anime, the blues, and Mayan history. Whoa. Um, all right, let's go on to Dave. I'm just going to get them all in here. Uh, DJ Butler has been a lawyer, a consultant, an editor, and a corporate trainer. His novels include Witchy Eye and its sequels from Bain Books. Uh, Serpent Throne is coming out in November, which is the the new entry in a sort of subseries, a new beginning subseries. I don't know what you call it, Dave, of, of Witchy Eye. Yeah, I talk about the series. Uh, so the problem is that guys like George Martin and Pat Rothfuss made it really hard for us who are long-form storytellers because people don't want to buy into book one if they don't think that ends a story. So, uh, so I tell people it's got, it's two trilogies, two soft trilogies making up a six book arc. Yeah. Well, this one, I think Serpent Throne, you could definitely start. Um, you can buy it as a, as a standalone novel very easily. Um, um, he's the author of the kidnap plot and sequels from Nop and, uh, city of the saints from Wordfire press. He plays guitar and banjo whenever he can. You just stick with the guitar if you don't mind in my vicinity. <laughs> Does that mean you play banjo and you're jealous or you just hate the festival? I'm very jealous. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and, and likes to hang out in Utah with his wife and children. Um, let me see. Betsy Dornbush is the, actually she's taller than all of us, but you cannot see that because of the Zoom. Uh, extraordinarily tall woman is the author of several fantasy and short stories and novellas and, and five novels, including the book of the Seven Eyes Trilogy and the Silver Scar. She likes writing, reading, snowboarding, punk rock, and the Denver Broncos. 
Betsy, man, you were doing so well with that list, and then you, okay. Betsy, <laughs> <laughs> Betsy and her family split their time between Boulder and Grand Lake, Colorado. Oh, my God, you live in the most beautiful place in the world. I really do, yeah. So. Except I can't go right now because there's fires. We're stuck. The fires have blocked off pretty much the entire mountains. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know yeah. Colorado was on fire. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Second largest in our history. Mm-hmm. And we've had the most beautiful sunsets. Yeah. <laughs> it's a trade off. It's like New Mexico. You're living in New Mexico, but you get these incredible sunsets. So, you know, it balances. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I used to think that about Alabama when I was growing up, but then it's like, there's no, really no trade-off. All right. <laughs> All right. Travis Heerman, um, freelance writer, novelist, award-winning screenwriter, editor, poker player, poet, biker, roused about. He's a graduate of the Odyssey, of the Odyssey uh, writing workshop and the author of the Ronin trilogy, Rogues of the Black Fury, and co-author of Deathwind, a horror Western novel and screenplay set in the same universe as uh, blood dust, bloodlust and gold dust. Short fictions appear in anthologies and magazines such as Apex Magazine, Alembical Four, and the Fiction River anthologies. And Cemetery Dance Shivers, uh, what is V11? That would be seven. <laughs> as, as a freelance writer, he has produced a metric ton of role-playing game work. That is cool. Um, both in print and online, including the Firefly role-playing game, Battletech, Legend of Five Rings, and uh, whatever that, how do you say that, M-M-M-O-R-P-B? Oh, that's it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Multiplayer uh, giant massive thing. Um, (laughs) Uh, I think think you pronounce it time suck. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, Travis enjoys cycling martial arts, torturing young minds with otherworldly ideas and the monster and monsters of every flavor, especially those with a soft, creamy center. So, um, well, let's. What we're here to talk about is straight out of Deadwood. This is uh, an anthology of short stories that are, uh, I guess, sort of in the weird Western uh, tradition, and it's edited by David Boop. It's at booksellers everywhere right now in mass market format now. Um, which means the ebook price also goes down. So it's an excellent time to uh, think about uh, grabbing this thing. What is, what's sort of the theme and, and conception? Maybe actually say what a weird Western, your idea of what it is, David, and maybe then we can uh, talk about this specifically, what, what makes this a cool book. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, I, I discovered weird Westerns accidentally when I wrote a, a Western mystery about a ghost who solves his own murder. And somebody told me, well, that's a weird Western. And I'm like, I've never heard that term. But then as they described what a weird Western was like, I had seen it my whole life and not known. So when you take a Western and you cross it with any other genre, uh, whether it be uh, science fiction, fantasy, horror, um, even mystery to a certain extent uh, can be a weird Western. Um, Sometimes it falls into an alt history, like we see with the game uh, Deadlands um, and Charlene Harris's new series. Uh, So it can be kind of an alt history, or in most cases, it's kind of a secret history because, of course, as we came west, we didn't know what was going to be here. We didn't know 
if there would be monsters or you know anything we we had no clue so it's easy to imagine that some of the things that the writers in this series write about could have actually happened and then lost to history what is uh, so what in particular is why is it called straight out of deadwood <laughs> let's put it that way Blunt. so um you know, I, I, I had kind of a background in marketing. And when I was thinking about the, the title for the first one, which was Straight Out of Tombstone, uh, originally I was thinking of Straight Out of Deadwood um, because it's kind of a fun little twist on the idea of, you know, we got straight out of Compton. It's immediately recognizable. Um, but it's also, when I was thinking about it, you know, sometimes these are the original gangsters, the outlaws, the, the, the people who rise up to the challenge and so forth, which was what a lot of Straight Outta Compton was about, is who's really uh, a villain? You know, is it the monster or the people who are hunting the monster? And I wanted to have that freedom for my authors to explore and, um, and honestly, Straight Outta Anything is, is really easy to remember. And from a marketing standpoint, you want to have something that's easy to remember. So, you know, so straight out of uh, Deadwood became straight out of Tombstone because Tombstone uh, was more recognizable immediately than Deadwood. And, uh, and then so when I sold the next two, um, it was going to be straight out of Deadwood and straight out of Kansas City. But um, I was uh, vetoed on Kansas City and was uh, suggested that Dodge City would be more Western in Kansas City, they're like, well, nobody thinks about Kansas City in the Old West, except that, you know, Wyatt Earp uh, was the sheriff there for quite a while, and Kansas City was the first town of the Old West uh, back in the day. But it worked out. I like Dodge City. Well, if it was going to be a weird Baby Back Ribs anthology, I think Kansas City <laughs> was excellent. To go along with Taco Night we were talking That's about. That's right. So. You don't know where those ribs came from. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've discovered a new genre. So, um, <laughs> so who'd, who'd you ask to be in this one? And uh, what are some of the stories? Uh, obviously, our folks here. Right, right. Well, you know, and it, 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 you know, when you do an anthology, so when I did Straight Out of Tombstone, uh, I relied a lot on um, my mentors, people who had helped me along in the business. Uh, like, you know, Kevin J. Anderson, Mike Stackpole, and so forth. And um, so when coming into Deadwood, I was like, I used up pretty much all of my mentors and anybody who owed me a favor. So going into Deadwood, I was like, uh, and Dodge City, because I did, I did the readings for both of them at the same time. I'm like, I'm going to have to reach out to some people that number one may not remember me number two uh, i didn't pull out of a fire and save their life uh and so um it was it was um it was a little hard um the first one on my list was charlene harris uh because i had met her at a convention we'd stayed friendly over the years and casual conversations we bump into each other and so forth but i was uh i had been hoping to maybe get a true blood story like an old west origin of a character or something and she's like no 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 i've got this new series and it's alt history western 
And I'm like, sold. <laughs> and so she was the first. Um, and then uh, surprisingly, Betsy was one of the first as well, because, you know, when she had asked me what my follow-up was going to be, I said I was going to do Weird Western. She's like, I wrote one. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and she had come up with this uh, idea using this character from history uh, in a Weird Western setting. And I'm like, give it to me. Uh, Travis was early on because uh, of Deathwind. Um, I had been at Word Fire when that was uh, in the uh, works. And uh, Dave Butler wasn't that far afterwards because um, I knew he had uh, the Witchy Eye series was coming out. And I also knew that he would give me a solid story that I could put in there. And, and I have to say that I am still in awe of the story that he gave me. I, I, I truly adore it uh, very much. Yeah, that's a great. Um, so, well, let's talk about some of the uh, some of the story. You got. Uh, you also have. Uh, I think you got a Resnick in there, which is cool. Mike just passed yeah. away recently. Yeah, that uh, that that is uh, Multiple Hugo a blessing um, that I was able to finally get to work with Mike before his passing. Um, he was somebody who was who who had helped me out and had been a, a good uh, friend over the years and losing him was, was really hard uh, on everybody. Um, uh, and it, it's sad, uh, I just went to his memorial uh, last week uh, that was ha ha on NASFIC, virtual memorial on NASFIC. And, I, and I, I wrote one of the, one of my greatest regrets in life is I didn't get to do a book signing with him. I wanted to do a book signing with him. Um, the irony the the cruel cruel irony is his story is about the death of doc holiday and it's a conversation between doc and death and you know this is one of the last stories he wrote so obviously it, the idea of death was clearly on his mind at that time uh but in true mike fashion nothing about the story really happens the way either Doc or Death want it to happen. So uh, it's a great read um, and I, I do highly recommend it. And it's a, a great little uh, memorial to the writer that Mike uh, was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, well, if anybody could have talked Death out of taking him, uh, it would have been Resnick. So um, <laughs> probably- uh, One more story, one more, no, I, I have a deadline. Story done and he was ready. So, um, uh, well, let's, uh, let's talk about a few of these. Let's talk about the petrified man, Betsy. Um, it was yeah. one of the first ones that, um, that David collected for this one, right? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I'm not a historical writer, but I have a long time had an idea of writing, a mystery series set in Colorado, and I wasn't really particularly aiming at a certain time in um, in history. Just I wanted, I liked the idea of doing mysteries, and I liked the supernatural, so I kind of thought that would be fun. Um, the mountains are kind of uh, conducive to that, and um, and I ran across this uh, detective, um, David Cook, who ran the Rocky Mountain Detective Association for started and ran it for a lot of years. It so was he's really, a, your main character is historical. He's historical, I yeah. Wow. So, you know, that's really intimidating um, because you want to get it right. He's buried here in Denver. He's he's a fairly well-known character. 
um, in in our history. And um, I realized he's perfect. Um, he he he's perfect to to investigate um, the supernatural because he is. If you ever take a look at his at his book, um, heads up, hands up, um, which is probably an autobiography, but is written in the in the um, third person. Um, he he has a very practical mindset, and he's very um, you know he thinks highly of himself. So I I thought it would be fun to have this character who who really thinks he has his crap together and I can throw crazy things at him and see what he does about it. And, um, and then there's some just other colorful characters. Um, Soapy Smith is in the story, another really well-known character out of, um, out of Denver, another historical character. Um, I don't know if they actually were together, but I, I like that I like the mix of them. Um, and they certainly would know of each would have known of each other. They were in Denver at the same time. Um, there's no way that they didn't know of each other. And very, I thought one of the unusual sorts of people. Yeah, yeah, very opposite. I mean, Soapy was a con man. Um, he, you know, he ran with uh, gangs and was um, very, very charming and um, and everything that everything basically I think that David Cook wasn't because I, I just envisioned David Cook as being this very sort of down to earth, practical, get the job done kind of guy. And um, compared to a very flamboyant um, Soapy Smith. So they make a good mix. Um, and I knew that they had, I knew that Soapy Smith had been in Creed. He owned uh, quite a bit of Creed and had a big influence on the city. And um, during the mining eras, it, Somebody, somebody wrote me, of course, when you write history, somebody always tells you that you did it wrong. And somebody said, well, he was gone by April. And I was like, I don't know, because I saw mixed, mixed um, information on whether he was gone in April. But it's also, you know, there's a petrified man in it um, <laughs> who basically kind of turns into a zombie. So um, that's not really a, very much of a spoiler. And so I figure <laughs> I can bend the, I can bend the historic <laughs> history just a little bit. <laughs> So it's 1892 in Creed, Colorado. Where is Creed? Uh, th this is a mine. There's a bunch of miners. It's a um, mining town. Um, it was huge. And um, it was really right before a massive fire that wiped it out. Um, primarily silver up there. And um, it, it grew. I don't remember all the numbers, but I mean, it just thousands and thousands of people were up in this little valley um, and made, made a city. It's a small town now, but, um, and I, I haven't actually been there. It's down, I believe it's more South than where I am, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool, cool town with a really cool history. So what's the setup to the story? Um, what's going um, on? They, they have had, um, a falling out, the two of them, um, and, um, Soapy calls, um, David Cook up, for some help and to you know thinking he's probably going to regret it but he's always curious he goes up and um and soapy smith says somebody stole my petrified man and soapy smith did have a petrified man um it looks it, everything i read it looks like it actually was a human being that was that was somehow mummified 
and um, he, his name was McGinty, and they used to sell, you know, they'd sell viewings of him um, and, and let people, let the miners come in and see him. And that was another sort of one of his gigs that he did. And this, so he, he says it's missing. He's like, McGinty is missing. And he doesn't tell David Cook that, <laughs> that, oh, by the way, this is a thing that can come to life. He just says, somebody stole him, you know? And so he wants David to find, he wants David to find his property, so. And, and FYI, we still have a festival around that petrified man called Frozen Dead Day, uh, Frozen, was it Frozen? No, that's up in a different town. Oh, is it? I thought that was just the same petrified guy. Yeah. Um, that's a guy. That's a guy up in Netherlands. Yeah, is that Netherlands the frozen dead days? That would be another fun one to play with. Yeah. So, so how far before I don't want to spoil the story, but so there's this question of the the what what is Soapy knows the that that McGinty gets up at night. Yeah. Um, so right. what is what is his suspicion and and what does uh, how far can uh, can David go before something scary happens? Well, not too far um, because there's some mysterious um, beatings and things. Not that you know there wasn't some crime obviously in a in a town like that with a bunch of miners um, and and also all the you know saloon operators and the various people that um, that support the mining operation. Um, but there's some mysterious things going on and some very violent things going on in the, in the story. And, and so he starts to get suspicious, but it takes David a while to figure out. And, and because they've had this history, this past incident um, where his, where his trust is broken because, um, he, because Soapy had said something was, um, was supernatural when it wasn't to keep David sort of on the string. Now Soapy doesn't want to tell him that it's supernatural because he thinks David will just be like, you're lying to me, I'm out of here. But just a, you know, just a, here's an item and it got stolen is a lot more of a, would be kind of more up David's alley. So. There's, uh, there's a great scene. Uh, it's, it's nearer to the beginning where he goes into the, uh, where where Cook goes in and questions the uh, the undertaker, um, maybe talk about that a little bit because that's when the suspicions begin to rise. Yeah, it's been a while since I've since I've read it, but um, he he's looking at um, if I remember it right because it has been a while since I read it. It's been a um, he, well, he kind he, of is worried that maybe because it's a woman that is there at the moment and uh, and she's very um she was obviously beat up badly and hurt very bad murdered in a really terrible way Um, that's the other thing that's going on the petrified man is missing yeah there's been a murder right right and there's and there's scratches on the inside of the inside of the casket and um, he's thinking this this is not uh, these all these little things are not adding up to what, um, like he knows he's missing part of the story. He just doesn't quite know what and why everybody's keeping a secret. And, you know, I, and I think of Sophie in a position of he runs this town. He's basically the, the camp boss. So the idea that he is gonna let 
um, let it out that there's something scary going on in town that maybe is dangerous and maybe and murderous and that dead things are coming to life. He's he that is not going to be conducive to him um, making still making a lot of money, <laughs> which is his main main goal. Yeah. So well, he has his reasons for keeping us keeping quiet. Well, it's a great story about um, a, a very rational man slowly be, you know, coming to, to the idea that something, <laughs> something irrational. It reminded me when I read it the first time, it kind of reminded me of the old Kolchak stories, uh, which I'm a huge fan of. And uh, the, the whole idea of Kolchak was there, there may be something supernatural or it may not be. And you don't know um, until you're, you're well into the story. And, and that's what I love about this story is it could be explained, you know, all yeah, of this could yeah. be explained out, but because it's a weird Western anthology, we know that there's something else going on. Yeah. I mean, David has seen things um, and because I've written other stories about him and earlier and he has seen some things. So he, but he's, he's still not terribly open-minded to the idea that every every weird thing that happens is supernatural. You know, he is going to actually go for the logical explanation, which is a human being is trying to you know pull one over on him. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a it's a cool st little creepily ascending story. It's really really fun. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk to uh, let's talk about uh, the greatest horse thief in history with uh, D.J. Butler. Um, so this is uh, set a little bit further up in time. It's set in uh, the in in 1930s, 1932, uh, and it's set in your uh, what is that series called? What are we calling it? I don't know. If we have a series name, but it's a short story about Hiram Woolley, who's the protagonist of the Cunning Man. Yes. Uh, and yeah, the story is set in 1932, but it substantially involves a real piece of history from 1855 which is sort of what the story is really about. So, so, uh, yeah, so it's, it goes back to the weird West. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, so, so in the real world in real history, there was a, a Shoshone Indian leader named Walkera who lived here where I live now in Utah Valley and was here when the uh, Mormon settlers arrived in the 18, uh, late 1840s. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, he fought a war actually against them. Uh, he was, he was known as Walker, uh, to some of them. So uh, Walker's war, 1853, um, uh, was eventually settled when, uh, one of the Mormon leaders agreed, uh, as, as part of making peace and becoming friends that he would speak at Walker's funeral. Um, and, uh, and we have his account of the funeral and it's, uh, it's sort of astonishing because these two uh, staid Mormon guys, right, from back east somewhere, go out to this funeral in kind of central Utah, and, uh, and Walkera is dead, and he's, he's tied sitting upright in a horse, and they have him holding a letter from Brigham Young in his hand to prove that he's uh, a peer with the mighty political powers around him. Um, and, they, and they lead him into, uh, into a, a, a hillside rock tomb, where he's buried along with, uh, and his two of his wives are sacrificed. Uh, they're, they're alive. They're killed to be interred with him. And then once they bury them, uh, once they seal them inside, uh, they they chain they the the people celebrating the funeral, Walker's people, chain two Paiute slave children to the outside of the tomb 
to stay there to serve the needs of the buried people in the afterlife, right? This is 1855. Mill Millard Fillmore is president of the United States. Uh, and, uh, and these two Mormon guys are standing there afraid to do anything because they just fought a war with these people and uh, they promised they would do this. They didn't really understand what they were promising. So they, the guy gets up and preaches a fun funeral sermon for, uh, for Chief Walker. Um, so uh, Walker was, uh, was Shoshone. Uh, some of the sources at the time took him for a Ute, but we didn't really understand all the people who were out here very well. Um, and he was- right. Well, the Utes are, I mean, Utes are linguistically related to the Aztecs, uh, I believe. Yeah, the Uto-Aztecan language family. Uh, which, so it would seem like, I mean, that sort of thing is the Aztec kind of feel to it, doesn't it? Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's very ancient, right? It's got a very, uh, yeah, it does feel very Aztec. Uh, but anyway, that really happened, Dave? So, yeah, so that really happened. Oh, my and, God. And, uh, and, uh, and later, the body was moved. Um, so later, the tomb was open, nothing was found, and there was this persistent legend that a group of uh, Shoshone um, men and, and some Mormon men helping them had relocated the body somewhere into the Uinta Mountains in, in northeast Utah at a place called uh, Kare Shinob. Uh, Walker, Walker himself, uh, there's, a, there's a historian who called him the greatest horse thief who ever lived. Uh, and he, uh, he, uh, his most famous exploit involved going all the way down to Southern California um, uh, and stealing 2,000 horses and bringing them back to, uh, it, it wasn't Utah at the time, bringing them back here. So That's sort of the ultimate counting coup. Yeah, it's a pretty big score. Uh, thousand horses. Yeah. yeah, he was locally he was locally a very important guy. So the story is about him returning as a ghost and haunting. It, it's about a uh, uh, sort of spoilers here, but it's about a, a a foreman who manages a horse ranch up in up in Heber, Utah, and moves his horses and unwittingly put moves them into Karishinov and uh, and disturbs the ghost. Um, of, of Walker and the rest of his funeral party who promptly steal his horses. Uh, and, and so the, so the story is uh, about, uh, or the, the point of view character is Hiram Woolley, um, 1930s sugar beet farmer and sort of a great war veteran, inveterate do-gooder. Uh, and he's actually coming to try to help this guy, this foreman who's been fired because the ranch owners think they, he stole their horses. Um, and when the foreman says, Hey, it was a, it was a bunch of guys in headdresses and, and riding, took the horses away. Uh, Hiram takes him seriously, um, goes out and speaks with the ghosts and ultimately appeases them and, and gets them to d deliver the herd is what the story's about. Well, tell us a little bit about Hiram's, uh, the milieu and the, uh, the world of, uh, the cunning man, Hiram, um, and his, and his, uh, son. Yeah, so so the world is very much our world, in that it is not a it's not some kind of mirror Earth where lots of people, uh, you know, are known to fly and shoot fireballs, and there's a council of wizards that everybody knows about or whatever. It's, uh, but but Hiram is is a is a wizard. Uh, he would not use that term. Uh, he uh, he would say that he learned some craft from his grandma Hetty, growing up on his grandma Hetty's farm. And so the magic that Hiram practices is, is out of the sort of English uh, cunning folk tradition 
with some elements of German Braukerei. It's it's uh, it's early modern Christian folk magic, which we have. I mean, there are practitioners who are doing this today. Uh, this stuff, um, and uh, and uh, so yes, yeah, so so Hiram uh, is is a little bit you know sort of one way to think about it is kind of the question: what is a what does a paladin look like in the 1930s? Uh, is this sort of warrior wizard uh, out to to try to help uh, the poor? Um, his son Michael is the second character in the series. He's a smaller presence in this story because the story is three years earlier than the books. So Michael's like 13 year old. Um, but uh, but Michael is. Um, is adopted. Uh, Hiram's close friend in the war uh, was a, a Navajo uh, fighter and dreamer, uh, and uh, and his his buddy Yaz uh, Yaz died, was killed over there, and Hiram came back and and adopted his son. So he's raising uh, the, the Navajo boy Michael uh, as his own, and 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 Michael is ag aggressively and sarcastically. Uh, the voice of science and agnosticism uh, and doubt, uh, even as his his stepfather is trying to, uh, you know, speak with the ghost of dead horse thieves and and do other stranger things without letting Michael let on. Yeah, and there's always like a little out for Michael in in all the scenes that he could he can still hang on to his uh, his Galilean rationality. <laughs> or yeah. whatever it is the he's yeah. a great foil for Hiram and there's also a great closeness between them of course because they're father and son um and uh well and there really is nothing like a 13 year old boy to tell you how it is <laughs> if you've ever been around one or had one <laughs> yeah. well Aaron and I both are both have teenage children so that's that, right that yeah. is very much a lived dynamic for yeah him. I'm getting through my second so yep <laughs> oh my god Yep, I got a 14-year-old son right now. <laughs> yeah, my condolences. <laughs> well, he's nothing compared to my 16-year-old daughter. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what, anyway. Yeah. That, that is an entire podcast. Yes. <laughs> so, that, in fact, it could be a horror anthology, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what else can we say about, uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful little story with, um, with, with, two timelines going on um you got you got uh, the great matt we should say that aaron michael ritchie writes the series with you although this story is, is your story um and it's it's sort of an earlier uh, story of, of and it sets up sort of what hiram does in the books which is go around and try to help people and getting magical messes as a result sometimes a little above his head yeah things can get scary out in utah well, and, and, and in part because it is the real world. So there's not, you know, uh, it's not safe to be seen as a magician in, uh, in 1935 rural Utah, right? Um, there's, there's no out for you. You can get prosecuted or, or, uh, or shot. So it's, it's a great story and uh, gives you a real uh, taste of what the books are like. Um, the, the book that is coming up is The Jupiter Knife, which uh, Dave and I were talking about. He's finishing up, right? Yep. No later than tomorrow. So, and the first book in the series is The Cunning Man. Um, 
Well, let's talk about Travis Hearman's uh, really cool, actual Deadwood story, Bloodlust and Gold Dust. Um, so, uh, what? Uh, I I can't I, uh, tell us about Deadwood. Um, I, I hear names of great characters who are I know are real, <laughs> and um, it's hard to. And, and of course, they're also um, some of these characters are in David Milch's amazing. Uh, series deadwood as well and you did a little different and it took me a while to get your version of them um well what was interesting one of the things i loved about writing this story is is sort of doing a ton of research about the actual deadwood i mean i uh i happen to be uh driving i, I went to uh, the sturgis motorcycle rally uh during while I was writing this. So I took the opportunity to drive through Deadwood and, and I hadn't been there since I was a kid. Uh, and, you know, just to sort of see the town and learn where the, the historical places that David Milch used, uh, like where they were in, in actual relation to each other. Um, because this was not a very big place. Um, and uh, the thing that was fascinating to me was after having done all this research, I could see where, where Milch uh, took uh, start, like the, the elements that he used to start his own story and then build from there. I thought that was really fun because I'd always loved um, the Deadwood TV series. Um, but it was also really fun to go back and learn who the real Seth Bullock was who the real Al Swearingen was and the real Calamity Jane and so forth. Milch got a lot of stuff just spot on, um, but he also took a lot of liberties. Um, so, you know, finding out where those differences were was really fascinating to me and also really fun. I just love playing in that sandbox. Well, your main character is Charlie Utter, um, the uh, Wagoneer, the, the, the Teamster. Um, who knew all these people like, uh, like Buffalo Bill and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. He was fun. I mean, uh, the, this, as I said, this was not a very big place. I mean, it went from, you know, an empty Canyon to several thousand miners and hangers on it over the course of like six months. Um, and it drew all of these people, um, you know, everybody looking for their, pot of gold and um you know including including wild bill hickok who wanted who basically came there to uh uh basically to uh get some gold from the miners off at the poker table and and uh uh so it, that was uh you know charlie utter was sort of a really fun sort of focal character even though I would not call him the protagonist. I mean, he's our lens oh, yeah. in the story, the Nick, but though. he's not the main character. So the first person there's, there's uh, so Hickok's been in shot at this point. We got Calamity Jane hanging around mourning for her friend um, in her, her spectacular mourning way. Um, we have uh, Wyatt Earp has just shown up. We have Seth Bullock, the sheriff. Um, what is, um, uh, and, and Swearingen, tell, sort of set up the, uh, the, who all these people are, and then let's talk about what they observe. Um, okay. Okay. Um, well, Al Swearingen was the owner of the gym saloon. He was a, a notorious blackguard. Uh, 
and um, that was one of the things that Milch had really right is just how bad that guy was. Um, but uh, one of the things he changed was that the real swear engine was married uh, and, and had his wife with him there in Deadwood. And um, so he, his saloon is the location of where the story really uh, takes off. Uh, and you've got Seth Bullock, who was the sort of unwilling guy who fell into the role of sheriff, um, even though it wasn't even a town, it was a mining camp. And it, it was an illegal mining camp on Lakota land um, that they were hoping to get some sort of quote unquote legal validation for from the Dakota Territory and ultimately the U.S. government. But um, th this was all, of course, done basically stolen, you know, stealing the land uh, from from the Lakota. Uh, not only not only the land, but the Black Hills were sacred to the Lakota. So there's this dynamic going on. Uh, and, and then you've got Calamity Jane, who is a uh, close friend and erstwhile lover of, of Wild Bill. Um, you've got Charlie Utter, who was friends with both of them. And they all, and the three of them came to Deadwood together with a, basically a wagon train full of prostitutes. And, uh, uh, so, you know, these were several thousand lonely miners with a whole bunch of gold to burn. Uh, and that, that drew a lot of, you know, hangers on, you know, from, from legitimate business people to all those people ready to bilk them out of their, out of their gold. Yeah. And now Wild Earp shown up and, and we start. Oh with yeah. Wild Earp forgot about him. <laughs> um, now he doesn't necessarily always figure into sort of the Deadwood uh, mythology. Um, although there's historical evidence that he did show up there like for a while uh, because he was also drawn by the gold. Um, so I thought it'd be really fun uh, to have him show up there and tell a story with him present as well. And he and, he and Bullock meet and, uh, and, and square and they measure, take the measure of each other because they're sort of the same mm -hmm. sort of mold of fellow. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah, Seth Bullock was an interesting guy. He he later on became friends with Teddy Roosevelt, um, and uh, I think he he now if I, if I'm wrong about this, forgive me, but I think he became governor of Montana at some point, um, like later in life, um, because that was where he was originally from, and he went back. But he figures very prominently in the in the political landscape of the Dakota Territory, South Dakota. Uh, as it became a state. Uh, so really interesting character. And uh, well, the story starts with them observing um, a couple of uh, prostitutes <laughs> or some so women at least. Um, mm -hmm. And in Deadwood, it's hard not to be <laughs> um, that uh, fighting in the street. What is going on with that and what happens? Oh, um, well, uh, it was a, a sort of a, let's call it a gladiatorial event that swear engine set up to make money and draw a crowd. Um, it was, I love the way you, and, it was mud wrestling, but I love more the way less, you, yes. you describe the mud <laughs> so eloquently and it's like so nasty. Yeah, like, like, like you could, you know, it was, you know, months worth of, of, uh, of rain runoff mud, uh, you know, uh, livestock dung and it was deep enough. You could lose a wagon in it. 
Um, so and chamber pot um, thrown out and <laughs> chamber everything. pots thrown out. Yeah. Cause that was the historical reality, you know, and it all ran downhill right into the creek where the miners were panning for gold. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what a mess. Um, so yeah, you've got, have, you've got these two women out there having a fight and then all of a sudden it goes weird and really, really wrong. And uh, well, I, mean, I mean, one of them bites the other one's ear. Um, mm -hmm. which is uh and and seems to really like it <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah, this, isn't, um, this isn't a nibble you know it's like oh this is nice <laughs> right no 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 it was right. not that it was uh, uh, i haven't eaten since this morning and i'm hangry <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah, one of the things I wanted to do with this story, because uh, is tie it into my weird western novel Deathwind, uh, which I wrote with uh, Jim co-wrote with Jim Pinto, and um, because there were, we had a really fun world there, a fun horror-based world that we were playing in there, uh, and I wanted to do more with that and uh, just sort of throw that stuff in with the Deadwood sandbox and just see what came up. And, so that uh, is so, related to that, uh, to Deathwind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's the same of kind of entity that's uh, behind everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we probably shouldn't say much more about that entity, but uh, um, they have to d deal with it. <laughs> Our mm -hmm. cast of characters in it. It's pretty cool. Um, the combination yeah, I, of weirdness and westernness. So. And I, I don't know if you noticed this, Tony, but it, in each case here, uh, and throughout the uh, throughout the whole series of anthologies, um, I, a lot of the authors uh, used real people and, and, and interlaced them with the fictional, which is something that I promoted and, and dearly love. Is the idea of the mixture of reality and fantasy. And, you know, everybody's heard me say this before. Uh, you, you can't sell them on your fantasy until you sell them on your reality. And one of the th great things that each of these authors did was take the real situations uh, that they discovered to build their stories around and paint them in a, in a, real, a very realistic way. But then also the fantasiful elements are, are just as real then because they sold us on their reality, everything that happens in Travis's story and, and DJ's and, and Betsy's is so easy to see that could have happened because they're so well uh, balanced between reality and fantasy, so. One of the things I love about writing historical, historical fantasy, historical horror is making, is making the reader wonder where the lines are right like the lines between where the the history and the, and the, and the fiction uh and i try to do that all the time because i love reading that kind of stuff so that's something i always shoot for yeah it even it sort of brings the history even more to life with uh because it puts it into your imaginative world as well as just the dry um uh, facts of the matter in a way um betsy uh what what drew you to writing? I mean, other than the fact that weird Western is a cool genre. Um, <laughs> I, I never thought I was going to write in the Western genre. It's not, it's not really my wheelhouse. It's not really my interest, though. I do love Colorado. So that's a natural 
place for me to go. Um, but once I found, really, like I said, once I found David Cook, I was like, I, I got to do something with this guy because he's just, he's just fascinating. And I love, he's almost a guy, and I don't know if I, if I succeed, but he's almost a guy you kind of want to hate because he's, he's pretty, you know, he's pretty self-confident sometimes even when he shouldn't be. And it's like, you, I love throwing stuff at, at characters like that, that, um, who think they have it all, you know, they've got everything under control. So that That's was, what we that was really it. And, and so once I found him, obviously his, you know, he lives in, in the wild west. So, um, so then I started researching and learning more about the history of Colorado, which is actually super fascinating. <laughs> well, and the great <laughs> detectives are usually kind of that type that, that, uh, uh, personality. I mean, we look mm -hmm. at Holmes and we look at Perot and, and yeah. so super yeah. rational. Yeah. yeah. And David Cook falls so easily into those, uh, those categories as a real person, uh, which then also adds more reality to when you're reading somebody like Holmes or whatever, because you could say, well, here's a, a fictional guy and here's a real guy and they weren't all that different you know, at least personality wise, it draws a certain type. Right. And I, I am kind of fascinated too with these makeshift towns that grow up so quickly around mining. And um, it, it's just amazing that what a group of people build and how quickly they can build a real community that is fully fleshed out for with everyone from you know, the preacher man who's trying to do the best he can to the, you know, to the people who are taking advantage of the miners. It's, it's really like, it, it's such a cool playground um, to mess with and, and stir up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, DJ Butler, I can't, I just can't imagine living in Utah without thinking that you're just surrounded by hauntedness because of the landscape itself just seems supernaturally charged. Oh, can't hear you, Dave. I'm muted. Sorry. Uh, this the landscape is striking. One of the fun things about writing this character in this story and others is writing, uh, kind of dragging up strange uh, geography and strange history of the state of Utah. Uh, you know, the Walker is. Uh, Funeral is an example. Um, there's another story came out in a Bain anthology about a month later. The story is called the, uh, I wrote a story, it's called The Seven Nipples of Molly Kitchen. Uh, because it turns out that in the state of Utah, there are at least seven and possibly as many as 11 mountain peaks named Molly's Nipple. And uh, they were all named by the same guy. Uh, and we don't really have very good records of who Molly was, but John Kitchen was probably her husband or boyfriend. And he went and did a bunch of exploring and he wrote the maps. And so he wrote Molly's nipple all over them, <laughs> uh, including right at the south end of Utah Valley. If you're driving south out of Provo, Utah, and you're looking at your Google Maps, you'll pass Molly's nipple on your left. I'm drifting past. Like, oh, there it is again. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I, so I imagined a, a sort of a monstrous Molly with a monstrous reason to have multiple nipples 
and for John Kitchen to try and give the world a warning about it and wrote a short story and again a different band anthology. <laughs> so, so, so Dave, I have to ask, were all the peaks shaped exactly the same? No, or... they don't look like nipples at all. I mean, I think John... <laughs> I think they did to Mr. Kitchen. If <laughs> <laughs> you're lonely out there. If <laughs> you're out long enough. In the canyons. Uh, it reminds me of that scene in The Naked Gun where they're driving. It's like, everything reminds me of her. <laughs> yeah. I might submit maybe Kitchen didn't really like Molly that much. It could have been the opposite. Be. <laughs> yeah. exactly. I will tell you that my children, after I told them this story, started naming things Dave's nipple. And so... <laughs> Oh, gross. It on yeah. certain I think we've gone over, too far. Dave's nipple over there. That was not something we needed in our heads. That's right. <laughs> um, Travis, also, uh, the, the uh, your story closes it out and is a Deadwood story. Um, you visited Deadwood, you said? Mm-hmm. And, yes. Uh, did you feel the uh, some of the history? I've been there several Oh, times. yeah. Yeah, you can't walk through that town and not feel it. You know, um, I, you know, there's, you know, the number, you know, man's number 10 saloon, the gym, um, there's a Bullock hotel now that didn't exist when my story, uh, uh, was set. Um, and there's, you know, across the street, there's a building that's kind of a faux brothel at this point where they've got a bunch of mannequins and lingerie set up in the windows. And, uh, you know, the, the whole history of that area just sort of comes to life when you're walking through that town and, and not all of it's, well, a lot of it is quite unpleasant. Um, you know, particularly with, you know, the, just how rough that town, that mining camp was, you know, um, what they did with the Lakota and, and so on. It, um, but it's there and it's really gritty and you can really sink your teeth into it. Yeah. Well, you yeah, I had a different experience. I had a different experience in Deadwood when I was there. Um, I, I showed up on Memorial Day and I was disappointed with how commercialized everything was. Um, you know, it's it's uh, approved for gambling. So it's like oh, yeah. casino, gift shop, casino, Wendy's, casino, you know, and it was like... Um, it, it was, I was a little disappointed and I had gone there accidentally. I'd missed a turn and then saw a sign that said Deadwood. And I'm like, I got no place else to be. And so I went there and I had been doing some research on a weird Western story. I was writing that uh, played heavily with Pharaoh, uh, the card game that preceded, you know, the ones that we know now like poker and, and, and so forth. We, we might have a like special Charlene guest. You do. Yeah, my object apologies. Well, it's oh, great to have you here. Um, uh, can we uh, can we talk about a talk with my mother? We've we've talked about the other stories, and we talked a little bit about what weird western means and all the the um, stuff about it. Um, now, this is set in a series that you're writing. Is that correct, Charlotte? That's correct. Uh, it's the Gunny Rose uh, series, and. I can tell you here, I just got signed for two more books uh, in that series. So, yeah, I'm going, oh, thank God. <laughs> I didn't know what else I would do. Um, I've written, the, the third book is complete. Uh, it's about a young woman who's 19 when the series begins, and she's a professional gunwoman uh, in a protection sense. She's not a paid assassin. She's a paid guard for whatever she's hired to guard. 
in the story is the same main character as yes Elizabeth. yeah okay and so uh tell us a little bit about the the setup and the milieu um we've got uh she's a tough girl she <laughs> is i love writing this, tough women in this story um she is her mother is this woman named candle rose and um she had uh, elizabeth young um she did she was right so tell us a little bit about the 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 world that they inhabit and and then what happened to candle and, and who elizabeth is well uh the world they inhabit is a fractured united states uh in in my book franklin roosevelt did not become president he was assassinated before he could take office uh and then the uh vice president died of uh spanish influenza so that left a power gap and there wasn't a clear succession then so america began to split due to the uh spanish flu the depression and the aftermath of the war uh so america has divided into five different components and elizabeth lives in texoma which is a combination of texas and oklahoma which is actually its own country in real life <laughs> <laughs> some days i think so i live in texas oh uh, yeah yeah well i lived in dallas a long time so i can tell you those texas well dallas is practically its own country <laughs> that is true that is true so uh so candle had her child um and that that turns out to be elizabeth tell us a little bit about her character she's a no-nonsense sort uh, Elizabeth is very straightforward. She is not subtle. And in some senses, she's very worldly uh, because uh, obviously in a depressed area, prostitution is going to be a fact of life. Uh, so she's worldly in that way, but she's not too worldly about politics at all. She really doesn't care so she's very straightforward she's very good at what she does and she's really proud of what she does too and what does she do well she guard you know she shoots people basically yes. uh she she guards things and if other people try to take those things she shoots and she doesn't shoot to wound she shoots to kill because really that's the only way you're gonna survive it and I don't want to give too much of the story away, but um, somebody shows up. And uh, how much do you want us to talk about it? Oh uh. uh, well, if you've read the books, you'll know who he is. Uh, if you haven't read the books, it'll be kind of a surprise. Uh, she goes off after the man who raped her mother. Uh, she hears he's back in the area, and she goes after him. Uh, and I think the way she deals with it is probably more of a surprise than what actually happens uh, she's you know she she set a goal and she achieves it she's a utilitarian sort one of the things i like about the story is that while her her uh the rapist of her mother who is her father um necessarily um is uh or biological father is that there's a really good guy it's also in in her life um who is, uh, what is it, the mother's boyfriend? Uh, yeah, she's married him. Uh, he's been a good stepfather to Elizabeth, and they have a very 
their relationship is not huggy feely. Uh, it's very practical relationship based on mutual respect. And um, he's really been very good to her in many ways, not in a demonstrative way, but in very practical ways. So in a way, this story, though, it revolves around, because it is a recounting by Elizabeth to her mother of, of what she's, she's done already, although we don't know yet at the beginning yeah. what it was. And it's about that relationship between these two women. Um, what is, why is she worried about how her mother's going to take? Her mother's not Elizabeth. Her mother is not as... Um, stripped down emotionally <laughs> as Lisbeth is. Uh, her mother has a softer, warmer side. And also this is uh, a woman who was terrifically wronged. And Lisbeth sees it as her duty to set this straight since her mother cannot do it herself. Lisbeth has bound herself to do this for her mother to, uh, to uh, avenge her mother's pain. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's a very powerful story and uh, and a wonderful. I think it's one, your cleanup story, right, David? Uh, as in, like the, the third or fourth story in the the book that knocks it out of the park when you got yeah, the bases it's the, loaded. I think it's the second story. And, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, um, you you lead with your your strengths, uh, and uh, it. Oh my God! When I got this story, I was like, so of course, huge fan of the Sookie Stackhouse books. Uh, and then eventually the series, which, you know, have their own lives. But um, I enjoyed the We should the mention, books. since I gave everybody uh, a little introduction, this is, Charlene Harris is also the True Blood creator, um, <laughs> as well as, uh, what's the what's the series called that Elizabeth's in again? That's the one you... No, well, that's still in development. Uh, that's Those are the Gunny Rose books. Gunny Rose, okay. Yeah. Gunny Rose. And Midnight Texas. That was a, Those were good as well um and then you've also got a series on hallmark right hallmark, reading, yeah. Hallmark. Yeah. talk about your opposite ends of the spectrum hallmark <laughs> hbo <laughs> yeah um probably a lot less orgies on the hallmark channel <laughs> I, I would assume than hbo I'm porn if it's um, hbo yeah. Um, <laughs> but um no when i got the story i was like this character uh, is so fascinating. It, it is so engaging. There's l levels, you know, the emotion she won't let herself feel versus the the reality of the situation that she's in. And I just loved it so much and was was very excited and honored oh, that uh, Shelley would give, give me uh, a lead into her new book series. And I'm like, yes, yes, this is this is what this. Uh, anthology needed and and it fits in so perfectly even though you know with a lot of the other stories there's a, a very obvious magical element or a very obvious you know science fiction element um, uh, Charlene's story doesn't blare any sort of like oh these are you know Harry Potter-esque magic users or anything like that it's left really to the imagination of how much magic is actually in this world in this story which makes you then 
want to read more because you want to know how no. far she's going to go. Desired result. Read <laughs> yeah. more. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, Charlene, is there anything else you might want to say about the story or have we covered enough of it to, uh, well, it's it's not a very long story, so I think we probably yeah we don't want to give too much away. But it's a, it's a great story. Um, well, uh, we talked about all the stories. Is there uh, David? Is there anything you'd like to to wind up with? Um, no, I, it, it has been an amazing experience working on all three of these anthologies. I've gotten to work with some of the most amazing people in the business, the most talented, not just who we have here, but everybody in it. Um, Stephen Graham Jones' uh, story is still a story that resonates with me every time that I think about it and every time that uh, I've read it, uh, sometimes out loud or I've heard him read it. Um, it is just an amazing story and I highly recommend it. It's disturbing. It's it leaves you, there's no good guys in it, which is, which is really hard to do. You want to root for somebody, but he writes his character so conflicted that you go at the end of it, you go, well, I don't know who the good guys and the bad guys were. And it was, I loved that. I needed that kind of story in there. And of course we talked about uh, Mike Resnick's story, um, uh, Jeff Marriott's uh, story in there is is really good, and, and there's just so so much good. Oh, Frog and Esther Jones, which is one of my, uh, you know, I said I like to get a lot of big names, and I like to get some new people who've been hitting on the ceiling for a while. Uh, Frog and Esther Jones' story in there, they're one of my uh, peers that I've met through the cons, and they gave me a delightful story. So. Yeah, I mean, everything in there is in engaging. It will make you want to uh, seek out more of these authors because they they brought it. They they really, everyone brought it. And I couldn't be more honored to have um, shepherded these three anthologies. And now with uh, uh, the mass market of Deadwood out and the mass market of Dodge City, it's still available in trade right now. Dodge season trade, but uh, comes out in mass market in uh, January, I believe, which is good because a lot of people have Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble gift cards. Uh, so, you know, um, so good timing there. Uh, so yeah, it's just been a, it's been a fun ride <laughs> on a wild horse. It's and, been a great uh, little, uh, great little anthology series. We've been proud to bring it out. So uh, the book is straight out of Deadwood. Uh, edited by David Boop. And oh, and let me just a quick shout out to our cover artist, Dominic Harmon, who does a lot of Bane covers. But my God, what a cover. Yeah, Look, it's that's it's really neat. good. Really good. Yeah. He's, a, he's a British. Uh, and those Brits, man, they love to talk about the West when you ever get them alone. <laughs> they do. And yeah. guns. Because they don't have any. <laughs> 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 So anyway, well, thank you, Travis Herrmann, um, David Boop, DJ Butler, uh, Betsy Dornbush, and Charlene Harris. Thank you so much for, uh, you. for showing up and talking about Straight Out of Deadwood and your story therein. Thank, thank you, you. Thank having you for us. having thank us. You. Sorry yeah. I was so late, but I'm glad I got here. <laughs> you glad you came too. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. 
honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. I think it's time, Sir Martin Lessam said. Commander Tory glanced at him across the table in his dining cabin, and the Commodore shrugged. The fact that nothing's come back from a Ajay suggests Commander Menendez and her people kicked their asses pretty conclusively. He paused, one eyebrow arched, and Turi nodded. Well, I'd hoped whoever they left in command on this side would be foolish enough or impatient enough to bash on through, trying to find out what happened. Clearly, he's too smart to do that. So, if he's not going to oblige us by sticking his head into the noose, I suppose it's time for Descabeo. Turi pursed his lips in thought, then nodded. He wondered if Lessam realized just how completely he'd revealed the revulsion underlying his professionalism when he named his ops plans. Tedescabello was the death blow, the second spine-cutting death blow if the first one was clumsy and unsuccessful, in the ancient bullfighting tradition which had been revived on some of the more decadent core worlds. Lessam had been dragged to one of them before the war, when he'd been assigned as the military attaché in the Sebastopol system, and deeply disgusted was a pale shadow of his response to it. Which didn't mean Descabello wasn't a perfectly apt word for the ops plan to which he'd appended it. Not that there'd been anything clumsy or unsuccessful about his actions so far. All right, the Commodore said now. Go ahead and tell Tom to execute in, he checked his chrono. 20 minutes. Yes, sir, the Commander said quietly, sliding his chair back from the table. With your permission, sir, I'll do that in person. Fine. Lessam nodded, and Turi came briefly to attention, then turned and left the dining cabin. Lessam watched the hatch slide shut behind him, then picked up his wine glass and sipped again. The rich port seemed vinegary on his tongue, and he set the glass back down with a disgusted air. I miss you, Sarah Kate, he thought, looking at the light portrait on his bulkhead. I miss you for so many reasons, but right now I need someone I can talk to who isn't one of my officers. Somebody who lets me put my head in her lap and tell her I feel like a murderer. He closed his eyes, remembering his elation when he and his people danced rings around what was obviously a smart, competent adversary. Remembering how clever he'd felt when he realized Menendez and her lacks must have evaded detection by the destroyers the Sali CO had sent through. He'd predicted exactly what the Sallies would do, and they'd done it because it was what competent people who lacked critical knowledge did. And the fact that none of them had come back yet meant none of them ever would. What must it have been like aboard those ships, in the fleeting seconds they had to realize what they'd just sailed into? They'd done everything right, 
and they were just as dead, in just as staggering numbers, as if they'd been commanded by Joseph Bing, or Sandra Crandall, or Massimo Filaretta. And whoever might have commanded the lack executioners, he was the one who'd killed them. That was almost the worst part of it, but not quite. No, the worst part of it, the part he needed Sarah Kate to save him from, was the fear that in the months and the years ahead, he'd learn to forget the horror and remember the pride. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and the podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a bloody orange and purple western sunset filled with UFOs, dragons, and assorted cyborg wyverns cavorting. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to David Boop, Charlene Harris, DJ Butler, Betsy Dornbush, and Travis Heerman, editor and authors of Straight Outta Deadwood. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>